Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1 and pick up at verse 26. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we call upon you. Since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word. Give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we ought so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and teach our neighbor by our good example. Rendering to you the love and the obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children, their parents. Since it has pleased you graciously to receive us among the number of your servants and children. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Well, let's see a show of hands for somebody who wants, uh, for anybody who wants a countercultural sermon this morning. It's pretty good. That's about half of you, so. (laughs) Oh, man. This is going to be painful. Um, I've taken, more or less, I've taken two sermons previously written and crammed them into one, and so I have way too much material. So either, either the Spirit helps me organize this or we'll be here for an hour and a half. Okay. Um, but but I, the reason I want to come back to this, and, and it's what I like to refer to as a prophylactic sermon. Every once in a while, you have to do prophylactic sermons uh, because you, all of us, are being catechized by the world. And especially when it comes to the doctrine of sexuality, you are being catechized by the world right now by every television show you watch, 
by every advertisement that comes across uh, uh, um, during the game, right? By the, by the games themselves and the players wearing various colors and, and messages, you know, by the universities that you send your sons and daughters to. I mean, the, you are being catechized in the doctrine of sexuality. And so I have to push against that, and I don't care if I offend you. I'd rather offend you and help you to live than allow the world to kill you. Okay? You're being bombarded by the culture, so uh, we must repeatedly come back to the doctrine of sexuality. Um, <clears throat> we, we live in a time, I mean, pastors have refused to speak on certain issues today. They studiously avoid controversial issues, right, like male and female, right? Or they come at them in such a safe or obtuse way that you never really get down into the brass tacks of the differences, right, the unique elements of male and the unique elements of female or the uniqueness of femininity and the uniqueness of masculinity, right? And one last point of introduction. I mean, all of us are somewhat astonished that news has come down that Roe versus Wade, it looks like will be overturned, right? And as you process that, you realize that it probably, because of the, the cowardice of our conservatives, will have no effect. And the reign of terror against females in our society will continue. The last 40 years has been a reign of terror against femininity and females. Do you realize that? We're so steeped in this, this catechism of the world and feminism, and feminism that, that we are all feminists. We have, we have drunk the Kool-Aid. It's, it's uh, by osmosis. It has gotten into our bones. And so every premarital counseling session I have, it's kind of like, I feel desperate that I have to like shake loose the women from their feminism because it's deadly and it's wicked and it's godless. Okay, and so, so we just, we, we've got to focus on this and, and I would hope that uh, the church right now at this, this cultural juncture where Roe versus Wade and is being overturned that the church would begin shouting the glories of womanhood. The glory of woman. The glory of the womb. The glory of woman being named Eve, who is what? The mother of all the living. The glories of motherhood. The glories of femininity. The glories of feminine deference. The glories of being second and not first. Ooh, now it's starting to get uncomfortable. And the obligations that come with being man and woman. And so, 
let's, let's just go back to Genesis a little bit. Does God have a purpose in making mankind in two types, male and female? Well, God has a purpose in everything he does, right? What a stupid question. But everybody says, oh, there's no purpose. It's, 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 uh, it's just the way things have worked out. No, God had a purpose in male and female. And if he has a purpose, what is its purpose? Genesis 1.27 makes it very clear that God making us male and female was intentional. God did not create man as a sexless spirit, but as male and female. Right from the start. That has ramifications for all of life in all ages. One of the age-old rebellions against God is to deny the structural, creational importance of the two sexes. We do not need to look far for our kind of, you know, for the kind of rebellion, that kind of rebellion in our society, and frankly, in our churches. Right? Think of our society. Androgyny has been cool for a long time. Androgyny. Do you know what androgyny is? Androgyny is David Bowie and Prince, right? It's male and female together, other rock icons. What about women in the military? Women in combat positions in the military, women being put on subs, submarines in close combat. Homosexuality is honored and protected now, right? And many are making an attempt to normalize pederasty, right? Um, Sexual relations between adults and children. Transgenderism. I mean, this this is the focus right now, isn't it? Transgenderism. Uh, Bathroom battles. Think of women's sports, right, being destroyed by having men compete in women's sports. All the fruit of transgenderism and confusion over what it means to be male and female. We could go to Romans 1 and hear what the Apostle Paul says about it. It is a sign of God's judgment and a proof of his handing over rebellious people to their sin. All of this is. Right? Gay marriage, gay adoption, no concern for children to have a mother and a father, all of these things. But in the church, the church is no better off. Right? The church casts the longing eye of the world, wants to stay hip, wants to be able to build bridges, wants to be able to attract people who have adopted these theologies and these idolatries as their own. And so up pops the revoice movement, which is the gay celibate Christian movement an attempt to define effeminacy as God-honoring. You can get your flame on, just don't have sex with each other, is their credo. Okay? We have gender-neutral Bible translations. Our Bible translation committees have done us a disservice. They have changed the Word of God, and most of you are unaware in all the places where they've done that. They've hoodwinked you. We have women predominantly being the spiritual leaders of the household contra God's call. Right? That's just sort of like, we just assume it. Right? That the woman is the spiritual leader of the home. 
We have a general disposition to deny women have been given wombs for a purpose. We deny fruitfulness. We despise fruitfulness. We've spent 70, we've spent 50 years killing 70 million babies. And that's nothing compared to the Chinese. And that's nothing compared to the effects of abortifacient hormonal birth control in our churches. We've killed many more than 70 million in the churches through those means. Chemical means. We generally like to raise our sons and daughters in a gender-neutral way, right? We put them all in the same sports. We put them all in the same clothes. We give them all the same exhortations, and we don't, we don't actually cater our exhortations to our own children as male and female, which is their fundamental identity. It's the first gift God gave to them, was male or female. Do you realize that? first gift God gave to you was making you a man or a woman. So our culture has infiltrated the church and we are reaping chaos, right? But God's word as in all things gives us the antidote, male and female, man in two types, is God's purposeful design. It is meaningful, right? There is nothing as essential to you as your sexuality. We have it right from our conception. It's declared on the first page of the Bible. It is God's first gift to you. So let's go back before the fall of man and sin entered the world and see what God intended for male and female. What is God's purpose in making mankind into types, male and female? Does our text begin to give us an answer? Well, it does in the, the, the following chapters. First, there is something about male and female that expresses the image of God. Genesis 1.27, in that respect, male and female are needed to express God's image. Male and female both are needed to express God's image. The full image of God does not find its full meaning in the male alone, but in man and woman together. Okay? Hugely important point. Equal dignity equality between man and woman when it comes to the image of God, glorious in the sight of God. Second, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is a product of male and female together. Genesis 1.28, God's first command to mankind, and from fruitfulness comes dominion, right? So, be fruitful and multiply, the first command to man. You would think that there might be something important about that command, the first one. Third, man we note is given a specific task, Genesis 2.15. He's put in the garden to cultivate it and keep it. He's got a task, it's in the garden. He is to cultivate and keep that garden. Fourth, woman is made, why? Genesis 2.18, why is the woman made? All these things are important. All these things are meaningful, right? Why is the woman made? Because it is not good for the man to be alone. That's what it says in 2.18. Companionship. The man was alone. God gave him a companion. 
Fifth, woman is made for a specific task, just as the man was. And it says this in Genesis 2.18, to be a helper corresponding to the man. It says a helper. It doesn't say a ruler. It doesn't say a warrior. It doesn't say a co-captain. It does not say a head. It says a helper. Okay, that's significant. That's significant and it's glorious because God made it that way. It's glorious because God did it. Woman is taken out of the man and created for him to complete him and to help him. What a glorious gift, right? That's the, the most stupendous gift that any man has ever received was Eshaw, the woman, after the, uh, as Adam said. Matthew Henry said, the woman was made out of a rib, out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him nor out of his feet to be trampled upon him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Right? It's such a sweet, sweet image. A little too sweet for my taste, but it's kind of hallmarky. But it's sweet. Six, woman is a gift to the man. The Lord God fashioned into the woman, into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man, this is Genesis 2:22, and brought her to the man. Like, you know, took out that rib, fashioned the woman, and was like, check it out. Check this out. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul affirms this when he states in 1 Corinthians 11:9. Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Whoa. Thanks, Paul. But Paul was an ignorant rabbi, right? He was an ignorant rabbi, and so we can't take Paul at his word because he was corrupted by, by rabbinical ideas. No, that's inspired scripture from the Holy Spirit. Okay? Seventh, man has a calling to leave and go, Genesis 2.24. Woman is called to be joined with her husband to become one flesh. What's one flesh lead to? Fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. So the man goes, leaves, and the woman cleaves to her husband. Now, let's skip ahead a little bit. Look at the curses that come by after Adam eats, right? Eve sins first, right? And Adam eats and all mankind falls because of Adam's sin, right? And so let's look at God's punishment that immediately follows that fall. These curses tie to their maleness and femaleness as it was defined previously. God doesn't simply deal with them as generic humankind. He deals with them in the curses as male and female. So what do we learn? First, the woman's calling to be fruitful has been affected by Adam's sin. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you will bring forth children. Any testimonies to the reality of that curse? Second, the woman's calling to be a helpmate has been affected by Adam's sin. 
It says, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. He will dominate you. Relationship is affected. Orientation toward her husband is affected. Right? Third, also implied is the husband's calling to lead, teach, guide, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, Genesis 3. God says you shouldn't have listened to the voice of your wife, but because you listened to the voice of your wife, time for your spanking. And that implies the husband's call to lead and teach and guide, protect. Fourth, The man's calling to cultivate and keep the garden to work has been affected by sin. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Any testimony about the difficulty of work? You know, using a drill to drill in a screw. You can't ever get the angle right. You can't ever get it started. And you drop it about six times before you get it in. That's the curse. That's the curse. All right, that doesn't happen to all of you, I'm sure. I'm just not very good at it. So after all of that, after Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that male and female mean something. God has defined them differently because he, because he made them differently. He made them male, he made them female, and he's given them a tasks that correspond to their sexuality. Now, the New Testament gives us some reflection on this creation count, right? In several places, the Holy Spirit has given us a commentary on the creation account. First, Jesus, in Matthew 19, affirms male and female, particularly verse 4. Jesus was not for androgyny or sexlessness or overturning some sort of Old Testament ethic. He affirms all that in Genesis by saying, from the beginning, he made them male and female. Jesus says that. From the beginning, he made them male and female. In other words, sexuality is God's most original purpose in creation. Second, the Apostle Paul affirms that what God has created is good. No backtracking. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. Paul gives a great big yes to the way God made things. Third, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15 affirms that male and female were created uh, as distinct identities. Even the order of creation has implications. Do you remember the passage, right? I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because Adam was created first and then Eve. Now that scripture everybody loves. You know. Fourth, 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 8 affirms that woman was created to be a helpmate to the man. It undergirds Genesis 2 when the woman is created. It said that the woman is created for the man and not the man for the woman. What? You feel yourself starting to swim up the current of our culture? 
up the current of feminism. You feel it pushing back in the scriptures, starting to embarrass you a bit. I do. I feel it. So in the end, what's my point? My point is that God has a purpose in male and female. This purpose has been lost. It's been perverted. It's been shoved to the side, denied, even though sexuality is so significantly on display at the creation of the world and in the time period when Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden with God in perfect harmony. Will we learn from it or adopt our culture's androgynous approach to sexuality, leadership, authority, right? Child rearing, uh, sex, will we? And so let us be men and women of the word. That's what we want to be. Men and women of the word who subordinate ourselves to God's will because he said male and female was very good. Very good. So men and women, are we willing to obey God's built-in design for us? Are you rebelling against it? In some form or fashion, are you rebelling against it? Is your conscience not good about how you are obeying the sex that God gave to you? Do you wish you were a man, girls? Do you wish you were a boy? Do you, do you, are, are you sort of frustrated that God would make you this way? Do you, uh, or girls, do you, are you frustrated that you want the tasks that correspond with masculinity? You want... You want authority to be your natural place. You know, you want um, leadership to be your natural place. You want work to be your natural place, work out in the world. Do you wish you were a woman, young men, boys? Or do you just want to shun responsibility and leadership? so that you can not be feminine, but so that you can be effeminate and sit in the cushy chair of your effeminacy. Femininity is a far cry from effeminacy. Effeminacy is wickedness, femininity is glorious. So don't confuse those things, right? Has feminism ruined your view of femininity and masculinity, right? Do not, do not ever, young men, young women, Listen to me. Don't ever be embarrassed of your sexuality. That God made you a, a boy or God made you a girl. Don't ever do that. It was given to you by God and he intends you to obey the sex. He has made you and bear fruit that corresponds to how he's made you. That's what he expects. Our culture would say, no, 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 no. Let's not assign the sex of our children until they've decided what they want to be. They are training children to despise God and despise how God has made them. That will lead to the hatred of God even before it will lead to a defiling and a hatred of their own body. That's what it will lead to. Do not be embarrassed to raise your boys to be men and your girls to be women if you are defining things biblically. Right? Resist the androgynous, gender-neutral approach to life that our society shouts about all the time. 
That is the preeminent example of replacing the creator for the creature, right? Isn't it interesting that if you throw off God, you end up worshiping yourself? And you certainly make up your own law. Male and female, it's a beautiful, intentional design by God, and you must not forget it. Now, let's turn to Titus 2. Because it's just one of the most shockingly grotesque passages in all of Scripture. I mean, it really is grotesque. Let's read Titus chapter 2. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, Workers at home. <laughs> That's got to be a mistranslation of the Greek, right? We've got to nuance our way around that one. Workers at home? Kind? Being subject to their own husbands? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrines, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. So there it is. We get this breakdown in this passage, and the apostle Paul starts writing to each one of the sexes and the different ages of the sexes, right? He's talking to older men and younger men and older women and younger women. And he's got very specific directions. But again, this is, this is Paul the rabbi, so we really shouldn't listen to him. He's got these rabbinical ideas from the first century in his, in his mind, and so we should not listen to him. We should, this is Paul just addressing the first century context, Right? Right? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for training, for, you know, you know how it goes. This is the Holy Spirit's writing, and it is written down for us for all times. And so we have to figure out what it means, right? And, and you know, he's talking about order. The first chapter of Titus, he's talking about order in the church. He's def- but then he moves toward what are good works? What are good works? And that's when he starts talking about this difference between the works of men and women, right? What are good works according to that fundamental part of you that you can't escape, your maleness or your femaleness? So scripture lays out a doctrine of sexuality, male and female, equal dignity, equal image of God, equal equal different tasks, right? And so men are to cultivate and keep in the sphere of the world. 
right? The female is to be helpmate to the man and have as her primary sphere, I'm going to say it, you have to hear this because the world is fighting against you, the sphere of the home. Ah, I see smiles, but you know. Different spheres and a different authority given to be exercised in a different context. Sexuality gives strength in those different contexts. The makeup of man makes him suitable for the things that God has made him for, and the makeup of woman has made her suitable for the things that God has made her for, right? As soon as I say that male and female means something concrete, though, which is what I've just done, it means something concrete and distinct, that we are given our sexuality by God for particular purposes, and that we are limited by our sexuality, we are boxed in by it, we are limited by it, and that God intends us to live according to our biology, and that Men have strengths in areas where women lack it, and women have amazing strengths where men lack it. I'm at odds with our culture, and I'm at odds with most of the church. Okay? And so I just want, I want, if, if I can, if you need to, like, move from here to here in this, this sermon is hoping to get you from here to here. I just want to push you a little bit. So when this wickedness pushes back against you, right? If this wickedness is pushing you and trying to pull you back, that maybe I've helped you resist for just a little bit. We have rebelled against God's good design. God called male and female good, and we have called them harmful distinctions. We have called them uh, fabrications of a patriarchal culture, right? And we're left with wreckage everywhere. We're left with confusion. We're, we're left with, I mean, think of Texas. Wonderful Texas. Don't mess with Texas, right? They're criminalizing sex change operations for minors. Glorious. Glorious. They're calling it child abuse, and anybody who does it is going to be taken to court for child abuse. Whoa. Just wait for the conservatives to cave on that one because it will happen, okay? It will happen. We are left with confusion everywhere. One of the main reasons we left the Presbyterian Church in America is there's a movement in the Presbyterian Church in America, right, where men are being taught that it's godly to, to be like women, godly to be effeminate, godly to get their flame on. That that's godliness. Women, this doesn't have to be proven. Women are being taught to be men. That has been the whole project of the feminist movement. Right? The only gifts that are worth anything are men's gifts. And the feminists have said that we want those men's gifts. 
And so femininity has been abandoned and chucked to the curb. And the female and the womb, right, and womanhood is just getting trampled on and destroyed in a thousand ways today. The fruit of feminism is to despise woman. Do you see that? It's everywhere. The implications of the work of feminists and perhaps in ways unintended by their work has been this. Man's gifts and callings are the only ones that matter. matter. Success is measured only by the standards of masculinity. So, for example, a woman is only successful insofar as she goes out into the workforce and cultivates and keeps the world. And here's the big deal. Marriage is not allowed to be um, a game changer in that enterprise. Even when you're married, you're still expected to go out and cultivate and keep the world, right? What once was a biblical understanding that the woman in marriage undertakes willingly and happily and without any fear the calling of helpmate to husband and ruler of the house and mother of a godly brood has been chucked away. Value today is only defined by work outside the home, which is wicked. The church must work, to, uh, work hard to change this destructive right, uh, evaluation. The, the home, the care of husband, the nurture of children, domesticity, right? Workers at home, it said in Titus 2, domesticity. is what femininity was created for. I can tell, I can see, I can see you're uncomfortable. I know it. Because it's just, this is so countercultural. Domest, he's, he's seriously, our, the pastor today talked about domesticity. There is glory, there is hard work, there is reward, there is strength, there is honor to be found in the domain of the home and in the domain of the domestic, right? And so part of what we must do is promote what is particularly feminine and stop going along with the world that only likes men's gifts, as it's laid out in Proverbs 31, as it's laid out in Titus 2, right? Love for husbands, love for children, love for the economies of the home, the family, the basic sphere of any healthy society. You have charge of the basic, basic part of a healthy society, which is the home. It's a world. I'm going I'm, I'm, I'm not stopping now. Sorry. Oh, that's the confession of faith. We better put that aside. That'll get us all off. There's G.K. Chesterton. Everything he says about manhood and womanhood is just like perfect. And he wrote it 100 years ago. He was a prophet. 
he didn't see the wreckage that the, the 100 years uh, coming down the road. He, he wrote this 100 and, 110 years ago. Listen to this. Boys play football. Why shouldn't girls play football? He means soccer. He's a Brit, right? Boys have school colors. Why shouldn't girls have school colors? Boys go in hundreds to day schools. Why shouldn't girls go in hundreds to day schools? Boys go to Oxford. Why shouldn't girls go to Oxford? In short, in short boys grow mustaches. Why shouldn't girls grow mustaches? That is about their notion of a new idea. Makes a good point, doesn't it? Makes a good point. There is no brain work in the thing at all. No root query of what sex is, of whether it alters this or that, and why any more than there is any imaginative grip of the humor and heart of the populace in the popular education. There is nothing but plodding, elaborate, elephantine imitation. And just as in the case of elementary teaching, the cases are of a cold and reckless inappropriateness. Even a savage could see that bodily things, at least, which are good for a man, are very likely to be bad for a woman. Yet there is no boy's game, however brutal, which these mild lunatics have not promoted among girls. <laughs> 110 years ago, okay? I mean, it seems like an, an op-ed today from some, you know, what do we call them now? Ultra-mega, uh, right-wing, you know, fundamentalist something or other, right? We have got to rejigger our thoughts, which have been made to think that femininity and domesticity and wifery and mothering are valueless. They are not valueless. They are glorious because God made you a woman and made you for those purposes. Can't even read those notes. Let's not define things by their exceptions. Right, but positively, femininity is not masculinity. It is glorious in its own right because God designed women for a particular purpose. Stop trying to destroy the distinction. Right, stop trying, uh, stop hoping that God didn't make you a man or a woman for a reason. Stop trying to define value in only masculine terms. Right, stop hating the home. Stop hating the designation wife, stop hating the designation mother, stop hating childbearing, Psalm 127. All right. And this is what I want to say, and, and I'll elaborate on this tonight when talking about abortion. Stop hating your wombs. God gave you a womb. The fact that you can make a human being is your most amazing power. And then not only that, make the human being, but then you can nurture that human being, even an adopted child. 
is a blessing of your womb because then you nurture that child as a woman, right? And you have a softness, a, a always saying yes to that child that every male lacks, right? Older women, do you know this? You have a curriculum that you're supposed to be teaching. Titus 2 is the curriculum you're supposed to be teaching. It doesn't say much about a leadership in the church. It doesn't say much about the doctrine of justification. It doesn't say much about the intricacies of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It doesn't say anything about preaching. But it says this. It says, be reverent in your behavior. It says, don't gossip. Calvin says, talkativeness is a disease of women and it is increased by old age. Just going for the jugular today. But I'm tr women, I'm treating you like moral agents. Do you realize that our society has given up even allowing you to have the dignity of being a moral agent? Do you realize you can't even sin in this culture anymore because you're women? But I will treat you with the dignity, right, of an actual woman who is a moral agent. And so you need exhortation, right? It says, don't get enslaved to wine, to opiates, to mood enhancers. It says, don't get addicted to those things. That is particularly a sin of women. Four, it says, teach what is good. And then five, it says, encourage the younger women to be all you can be, to have girl power, to forsake your femininity, to pursue your career, to have a gender-neutral approach to everything in life. No, no, it says these things, and they're stupendous, right? Encourage the younger women to love your husbands, love your children, be sensible, which means self-controlled, right? Be pure, not dirty. Be a worker at home, oikos, ergon, right? Worker, house. <laughs> There's no way around it in the Greek, okay? Um, be a worker at home. Be kind, which means to be generous and hospitable, and then it says to rank yourself under your husband. Be subject to your husband. There's glory in all these things. This is God's word. There's glory in every one of these things. This is what God has told you as a woman to be, right? Be subject to your husband. And why all of that? Where does Titus 2 end, right? What does it say? Be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, be subject to your own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So that everything that I've just taught you out of this book would not be dishonored. The book asserts a distinctiveness between the sexes, which begins in biology and works out in work corresponding to that biology. Now think of this. I, the last thing I want to say, and, and there is so much that I would need to say about this. There's so much. 
because I understand that it, there are many women who grieve that they have not been able to have children, right? And it's very painful. It's very painful for, for a woman in marriage not to have a child, and, and it should be, right? Um, how many of the barren women in Scripture rejoiced when God took that away from them? They just rejoiced. They were so happy that God would open their womb. And so I realize that. And there are many women here who have had multiple miscarriages. I realize that. But what I want to say is there is nothing more basic to being a woman and femininity than your womb being fruitful. I'm not going to be embarrassed about that. Eve was the mother of the living. Eve was the mother of the living. And you have a superpower, right? And now, you know, I'm especially obviously talking to the women who are younger, who have been catechized in feminism and who are coming up on marriage or are getting married or are early in marriage. You have a calling from God. I mean, even Elon Musk thinks that we have population problems and aren't at replacement value. And we kill our children with abortifacient hormonal pills. You have the glory of that intimate bond between a child and yourself in the womb that no man will ever, ever get to experience. And it's glorious. And you know why it's glorious? Because Jesus Christ himself was in the womb of a woman. What glory. In talking about this, we're working on a, a paper on abortion. I'm going to share some of that tonight, so uh, come back. But um, one of the sections is talking about that moment when, when Elizabeth and Mary get together, right? And, and it's likely that Jesus at that point is maybe three or four days old, right? And, and John the Baptist responds, right, to the glory of Jesus as, a, as eight or nine, a dozen, 24 cells or whatever. Barely visible on ultrasound. And so, just think about that. Almighty God inhabited a womb. Men don't have those. Women have those. And what I was going to say is, I, I, it, it made me, when we were contemplating those things, it made me, one, want to go back to when my kids were in the womb and be a little more compassionate to my wife and put my hand on the belly and feel the, you know, the, the mo movement. It always kind of freaked me out a little bit. And I was just a weak man during that time. But I, and I want to go back. And then I was like, man, maybe, maybe Sarah, you know, could get pregnant again. And then I was like, that would kill her. It would be very, very, very hard. Right. But there's glory in this. Do not, do not, and, and so all you're hearing me, and I'll, I'll shut up now, but what I want you to hear me say is, women, you have a glorious calling from God, and it is nothing like what the world has been telling you all your life. 
And we will not be embarrassed about it. We will not be ashamed about it. It it is the word of God, and it is truth. There's so much more I could say about how men and women relate to each other, and maybe I'll get to that at some point. But, But, you know, wives, you are subject to husbands, and that really means that your husband is going to love you to death. He's going to love you. He's actually not going to treat you like an equal. That would be to abuse you. He's going to treat you like a weaker vessel because he's going to want to care for you. He's going to want to protect you. He's going to be the one who gets up in the middle of the night and goes to the door with the 44 on his side, you know, when people are scrapping around out there. Right? That's, what, that's what he's going to do. Amen?